Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about it, i tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? I think the biggest challenge was in the Navy, they told you what you needed to do to become qualified. So there was a process to become, to rank up. I would say this, I would say uh, for seven years, it took me about seven years to try to, to try to find my purpose again, because my purpose, my North Star was get to the fleet, serve my country, be a submarine officer. That was my North Star. It took me a long time to get there and I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, and so the, the, the point that where I felt lost mostly was the fact that there was no process to get qualified in the, in the civilian world. My guest on the show today is John Rene, and he runs a successful business as a manufacturer of critical components for the electrical utilities. He's also a podcast host and the author of three books on leadership. What is fascinating about John, he was also a serving officer aboard a nuclear submarine during the Cold War. Now, John was born to a family in Manchester, North Hampshire, which is a, a, the largest town just north of Boston in the US. It is a blue-collar town and people do not leave. He was born to young parents with equally young grandparents. He had a wonderful childhood with six adults around him. His grandparents had his grandfathers had both served in World War II and talked fondly of military service. So the military idea was in his life and he went into the Scouts and did various other things that were kind of akin to that way of thinking. Now while John was born to a loving family, life was abundant but funds were limited. And his father, while extolling the virtue of getting to college, the opportunity would only be possible with a scholarship. John was fascinated by engineering and submarines and expressed his idea, would it be possible to become a serving officer in a submarine? The high school careers guy was surprised, but he did his research and he found an opportunity. The Navy had a scholarship degree program, which led directly into officer training. If John could get on the program, he would have a chance. He got accepted. He did his four years of college and achieved an engineering degree and then went on into the Navy as a commissioned officer. So we get to hear all about that journey, getting into the Navy and becoming a nub and how you move on from being a nub. That is a non-useful body. Anyway, it's interesting. 
This is a fascinating insight into the life of nuclear submarines, but it's also more than that. It's about what John learned from his experience in the military and how he took what he learned and took it out into the business world. Now, I have often heard from people who have served and they say the transition between service life and civvy street is very difficult. John did that struggle for seven years, but he applied his Navy principles to his work and the rest is history. He led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies until he started his own business in the manufacturing sector producing components for electrical utilities. He has written three books on the subject of leadership and he's the host of the Deep Leadership Podcast. So let's join the conversation with John Rennie. And we are all about the journey, about how we got to where we are now. So where did it begin for you? So I grew up in New England in uh, in a town called Manchester, New Hampshire, and it's sort of like a blue collar town and uh, and it's the largest city north of Boston. And that's not saying much. There's not much north of Boston in the U.S., but uh, largest, largest city, small city. And a blue-collar town, and most everybody are born there. They um, they raise their families there. They die there. And um, so a blue-collar town. I mean, that means obviously it's a heavy. Is it a heavy industry town? Used to be. So it used to be a lot more in the way of uh, manufacturing. So a lot of textile mills from from you know the eighteen hundreds. Well, Manchester yeah. Manchester in this country was all yes. textile mills as well, of course. Yes. So yeah, and that's where they came from. So in my in my ancestors came from Manchester, England to Manchester, New Hampshire to work in the mills. So, all right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So blue blue collar town and. Um, and so, yeah, so, but I had, uh, but I had two grandfathers that uh, both served in World War II. And I think uh, for me, their stories inspired me to go beyond sort of this, this blue collar town and sort of uh, they, they, they went on and did some amazing things in, during the war and they went and did and went to like interesting places. Did Well, that's the point. If, if everybody yeah. stays in the blue collar town, the way out is military, isn't it? And if they, often the, it way out, the way out is, is join the sources because at least you get a chance to travel and someone else is paying for it. Exactly. And so that's what I did. And, and Only so, problem is with that one, you have to possibly kill people in the process, but that, that's a kind of like a flying you in a bit or get shot at. <laughs> well, yeah, in the route I chose, I, I ended up uh, joining the submarine force uh, in the US. And so less likelihood of getting shot at, but there is likelihood of it not uh, the submarine not reaching the surface, of course. Yeah, I guess there is. The other yeah. risk. <laughs> so, I mean, let's just, well, I know, obviously your grandparents were of interest to you. Let's, let's explore that early childhood thing, because I always love that kind of story at the beginning of these things, because we form our opinions and our decisions and our values in those early years. So what was your early years like? I mean, was there, what was, what was your, you know, what was your dream to be when you grow up? So, you know, I had the perfect childhood, like a lot of people say that probably, but I did. And I had uh, because I had my parents who had me young and my grandparents had their uh, children young as well. So I had young grandparents, I had young parents. And so I had six parents growing up. Essentially, I had a brother and a sister and we had, you know, everybody was in the, the same town. So I had I had weekends with one grandparent or weekends with the other grandparent and I had my parents. So it was really a great because I had I had older adults 
uh, influencing my life uh, in those early days. And as I mentioned, the, uh, the 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 idea of the military was always something that I was. I, so I joined I joined the Boy Scouts, and you know, all, went all the way through the whole Boy Scout program where you wore you, a uniform. You, you were in a classic family, but you you're in the cla- very rare classic yes, family. It's, it's yes. the storybook family, isn't it? We're having all these grandparents and, and um, influential adults around you, and obviously you, yes. you, you say you you followed the military thing. You went into the Scouts and you did the uniform thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. And I, you know, and so the weekends were spent with family events and, you know, every holiday was, you know, the big Thanksgiving dinners, the big Christmas dinners, a very family, you know, everybody in one town type of type mm. of place. So it's like, in a lot of ways, ideal, but, you know, we were, we were sort of uh, maybe lower middle class, you know, if not maybe, you know, slightly in the poor section, but we didn't, I didn't know that, you know, we, you know, maybe I had friends that took trips to Disney or what have you, and we didn't. We went camping. So our family vacations consisted of, uh, you know, a tent in, in going camping someplace. I know. I know exactly the sort of thing you mean. Money wasn't wasn't abundant. There was money around, but it wasn't right. abundant. That's, I, I, you know, it wasn't, you know, we never really went let, let, missed out. But yes, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Yeah. And so my father was an electrician. My mother was a nurse and oh. they were hard, hardworking, you know, and I think they taught my brother and sister and I work ethic. Um, they really, my father was always saying stay in school uh, because, you know, what he was doing, he said, it's, he said, it's a young person's job working with your hands, being outdoors all the time. It's a, it's a young person's job. So stay in school. So they really emphasize education, you know, doing, doing your best in, in school. And the other thing too, is because we didn't have a lot, uh, as soon as we all, each of us turned 16, we all had jobs. So we, we worked from, from an early age in various types of jobs. And I worked everything from fast food to beer delivery to residential construction. So anything to, to, to make money essentially to be able to pay for, like I had a car fairly early on and, uh, you know, it just, but all that went towards, you know, we sort of had to do it on our own. Mm. And the sort of came, came about when college came around was, you know, I told my parents I want to go to college and I told them I want to go to an engineering school. And they just looked at me and said, we don't have the money for you to go to engineering school. And I said, okay. And, um, but there was this thing called ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. And so the Navy would pay four years. If, if you could get into the program, it was a four-year scholarship uh, to an engineering school. And so I applied and got in and got a four-year scholarship to engineering school. So uh, essentially, I found a f- the military was a way to pay for college, but it was also something I wanted to explore mm. based on my relationships with my grandfathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So what age were you when you went into the services then? So I was probably <clears throat> 21, 21 years old. So I so I got I was I went through college, finished uh, my undergrad in mechanical engineering, and then I was uh, commissioned as a naval officer uh, right after I graduated from college and then right went spent a year and three months in training. So six months in nuclear power school, six months actually operating a nuclear reactor, and then I did uh, three months of submarine school, and then I showed up to the USS Tennessee. Uh, right after that. So the USS Tennessee, she's a ballistic missile submarine based in Kings Bay, Georgia. And I was one of the officers on board. So the crew of a submarine is 155 men right at this time. So there was no women on submarines back then. So 155 men and 15 officers. And I was one of those officers on board. Wow. 
And this is a nuclear submarine with nuclear deterrent on board, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So you got a nuclear reactor, 24 nuclear weapons. And um, and this was at the uh, it, during the Cold War. So we're still in the Cold oh, War. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah, right. OK. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so the, you seriously were on the front line then because that, that yeah. there was there was every possibility that you would be asked to do the job. Correct. Yeah. And at the time, the, 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 you know, the Atlantic Ocean, I was an Atlantic sailor, but it was filled with with Soviet uh, submarines, ships, uh, surveillance. They would meet us outside of uh, when we come out of port, there'd be a Soviet ship there kind of watching us, monitoring us. And uh, so, yeah, that was back in the cat and mouse uh, Cold War days. Did yeah. you play games? Was it was it was it serious? Was it were they get was it a game between each side? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so there's been stories of 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 things that got a little more serious with mm. submarines. Uh, but in our case, we it was always a little bit of a cat and mouse, a little yeah. bit of deception. You know, we would we would do th- when we saw them, we would do things to be deceptive and and uh <laughs> yeah, so lot lots of little things that we would do to to each other to be deceptive, but um but it was more it was more like a friendly rivalry that's, that's what i, I was wondering about yeah. whether it was like yeah. you know whether it was a kind of like a, yeah we you, yeah right yeah we're, we're playing at this at the moment it's not yeah, serious yeah it's all, not all serious my... at the moment because the boss hasn't said it's serious but when it's serious we're going to be serious <laughs> yeah i would say during my all my interactions were like that yeah very much um nothing serious had you know it came from it for sure yeah, yeah. 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 So, what was driving you in this? I mean, I know it's where I was saying, like, you know, I followed this because my grandfather yeah. did this, I did this, but yeah. there must have been so because it was like we don't. Although you can move in a direction because you get led there on some level, you you still have to find something in it for yourself. So, I think the um, the, the my grandfather who was in the navy uh, was in the North Atlantic during the Battle of the Atlantic, and there was a lot of he had uh, he was on a destroyer escort that had a lot of interactions with German U boats, and that was the, that was part that sparked my curiosity. the The idea of an underwater weapon platform was fascinating to me, uh, especially and so it got me as a as a young boy reading stories of uh, of World War II submarine uh, uh, crews, so specifically in the in the Pacific theater, right? So there was there was quite a lot that uh, the US uh, submarines did in the Pacific theater when after the you know, our fleet was devastated after Pearl Harbor, the submarines sort of held the line until mm-hmm. you know, the Navy could get built back up again and get back out there. But um, so a lot of heroic stories and um, a lot of uh, and so I think that that inspired me as uh, as a young boy. And actually, I set my goal even before I went to high school that I wanted to be on submarines. So that was something it was so, you know, kids dream of being a firefighter, a policeman or an astronaut. I, I actually wanted to be on submarines. What was interesting is I actually went to my guidance counselor my freshman year in high school. And I said, they said, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, I, I want to be on submarines. I want to be an officer on a submarine. And, you know, the, the counselor looked at me and like, goes, nobody wants to do that. You know, like it was, it, it was, it shocked him, you know, but, but um, what was interesting is that he took the effort and he actually studied it and tried to figure out, okay, what do you need to do in high school and in college to be able to do what your dreams are? And he told me, you got to be really good in math and science. You got to get into a good engineering school to, to increase your likelihood of getting into the fleet and becoming an officer. And so that's what I had to do through high school. And, um, you know, no one from my family had ever gone to college. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like going to college and, and learning engineering, no one's ever was an ever, ever engineer. I didn't even quite know what engineering was 
but I sort of had to figure it out because I had a passion and a goal to get to the fleet and, and be one of these, you know, officers on these kind of amazing uh, weapon mm. platforms. So it was, it was definitely a dream of mine from, from an early, early age. So uh, what was, I mean, I mean, it must have been classified at the time, all the stuff you were doing. I mean, is it, was it, has it been declassified what you did or you, do, do you just don't talk about it? <laughs> so yeah no some things are and some things aren't so some how do you know where the line of, is <laughs> uh they were pretty clear when we left what we couldn't and, um, <clears throat> it's funny because i've written a couple of books based on my experiences in in the in the navy and how i brought that leadership into in, into business and uh so but i was trying to make sure that i didn't cross the line so one of my rules were was if i could find it in a wikipedia then it's probably not highly confidential so i would look something up like okay if they're saying this on 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 wikipedia then it's probably okay to put it in the book so so i very much uh, i think in the uk if you're a military officer you have to send your books to be uh, reviewed you can't just re- well i think that's yeah used to, but- used to be that's, yeah, you... that's typically the case here, but I stayed so far away from any uh-huh. details uh, that uh, I was very, and, and plus I've been out of the service for a long time. So, uh, yeah. so my stories are very. Ancient. So what were you, what were you involved in? Were you involved in the nuclear reactor or the, or, or the weapons platform? Is it what you, is the reactor you're involved in? No. So we, um, there, there, there's different types of officers and what, uh, what I was, was called a line officer and a line officer is someone who is trained to take command. So we're training up to be a commander at some point. So that means that we are put in various roles. Like I started out as the reactor controls officer. So I was in charge of all the men that, uh, maintained all the electronics that controlled the nuclear reactor. Mm. Then I moved on to become the propulsion officer, which meant I had all the mechanical equipment in the engine room was my responsibility. And then I was the missile officer. So I had all the, the nuclear missiles were my responsibility uh, on my left. So, so I rotated between three different so did you jobs. Get to, did you get to become a commander in the end? No, no. I only stayed in for five years. Okay. Uh, so I only stayed in for five years. And then, um, you know, I saw a lot of uh, yeah, submarine man. life is tough on families. So I saw yes. a lot of divorces and I saw a lot of breakups <clears> and, and I decided I was married and I was decided my wife and I decided that we would get out after five. Yes, because you're a long time under the water, aren't you? You're underwater like three months at a time on you. You don't you don't surf yeah. for months at a time. So I do, you know, three months at a time. I did that seven times. <clears> so it was a long lot of time, you know, two years of my life under the ocean. And uh, I think it was, you know. I really got a chance to really scratch that itch and do something really kind of interesting. And I was ready to kind of leave, start a family, you know, mm. get a, get a job, build a career. And so, yeah, I left like, like a lot of guys, a lot of guys leave after that first five-year tour. A lot of officers do. Mm. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I obviously, yeah, yeah, I can understand why you left. You say it's, it's tough on people, isn't it? Tough on the people you love at the end of the day. It is. And we were without communication. So we went out for three months. You had no no way of, of communicating back home. So it's not it's, like we had email it, or a phone call or anything. So. Do they have communication now then? So they do, uh, but it's very limited um, okay. is what I understand. So the, the, what we would get was called a family gram. And so your your family could send 50 words to you like once a week. And that was it. And no way to, and no way to talk back. So, yeah, so it was, you were really isolated. Uh, you know, we, we always say the guys who, were, who did the submarine service always believe that we'd be the perfect astronauts because we would live in isolation for long periods of time. And, and yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you know, you were just. What do to- you do for entertainment on a submarine when you are, I mean, I mean, do you get time off on the submarine or are you working 24? Are you working and sleeping, working, sleeping, working? What, what happens? 
Well, so when you're a junior, when you're a junior member, when you first get on board, you have to get qualified. And that's about a year long process to earn your dolphins. It's a it's a gold pin we wear. It's called yeah. your submarine dolphins. It means you're fully qualified in all submarine operations. It takes about a year to do. And so during that year, you are not allowed to have fun. It's pretty much your nose to the grindstone. You're studying. You're either standing watch or you're studying uh, uh, or, or working to, uh, to, to get qualified in each watch station. So it's a pretty brutal process. It's a very high level of positive peer pressure to get qualified. So you're called a nub when you first get on board, and that is a non-useful body. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the feeling is, is that you're, you're wasting oxygen. You're using <laughs> other people's oxygen and, and you're wait, you're eating food and you're not qualified to be here. So until you are in those uh, dolphins, it's a lot of uh, pressure to get qualified. So you do not sleep much. I, I, I am. Yes. Yes. And it's because it's, it's, it's testosterone filled place with full of men who are going to rib each other mercilessly. So I can imagine being called the knob is, is, is the thing that you get called on a lot, a lot of regular it is. Places. It is. <laughs> but, um, but once you get qualified and once you're qualified in all the watch stations and, and the more experience you have, the more you're going to get some free time. So you, you stand less watches. You... But I mean, what's free time in a, in a, in a tin can under the water? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's, uh, we would um, read, you know, you would uh, work out. We had a little gym. Uh, we okay. Would have We'd have movies. We'd have movie night. Uh, Saturday nights, we played poker. Um, so we'd have pizza on Saturday nights and play poker. But uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, we had a routine and there were things you could do, but it wasn't like you're going to go for a walk or, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're stuck in a metal tube. It, so. it, I have to say that because I'm a, I'm a big fan of a YouTube channel called um, Smarter Every Day with a guy called Dustin. And he did a series on a nuclear submarine. Yeah. He, was, he was given permission to go on a nuclear submarine. And he did a whole series about, and he spoke about lots of it. And obviously lots of it was blanked. I think he could say and couldn't yeah. say. It was, it was, but it was fascinating to see the inside of a modern nuclear submarine. So if anyone's interested in that, do check out Smarter Every Day. It's a good series. Yeah, it's good. And I think it portrayed it really well. I saw a little bit of it. Everyone shared it with me when it came out. They're like, you got to watch sure it. I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would. They think you I might need to watch it. No, it was it was it was a nice insight into the thing. I think he met them on an ice on an ice pack somewhere. He actually had to arrive at an ice pack. So. They surfaced through the ice and very very dramatic. <laughs> uh, very much, yes, yeah. So you know, moving on to my questions. So, so obviously, this is that's the the, the life you chose. Now, what happened when you left the services? Because that so I, yeah, I think that's yeah. just as difficult because something it was regimented yeah. world where everybody does things I and mean, when you and yeah. you've got a position get that done someone does when you leave that world you say get that done they go yeah really <laughs> <laughs> i think the biggest challenge was in the navy they told you what you needed to do to become qualified yeah so there was a process to become to rank up to get qualified to to qual be qualified to stand a watch station so there was a process right and so <laughs> The biggest thing I noticed when I came out and, and a lot of us came, got out and we worked for corporate, uh, large global companies. So I, I worked for throughout my career, I worked for three global companies for 22 years. But I started off as a design engineer uh, at, at a very large global company. And um, I would say this, I would say uh, for seven years, it took me about seven years to try to, to try to find my purpose again, because my purpose, my North Star was get to the fleet, serve my country be a submarine officer. That was my North Star. It took me a long time to get there and I enjoyed every minute of it. But then 
so then what do you do when you hit your life's goals at 24 years old? Well, you've got to figure it out again. And that's what I had to do. And it took me a long time. Uh, and so the, the, the point that where I felt lost mostly was the fact that there was no process to get qualified in the, in the civilian world. So what do you do to become a great design engineer? Well, there's no book, there's no qualification process. And so for me, at least I, I took what I learned on the boats to, to, to my job in, in the civilian world, which was I, I spent time with the more experienced people. I asked a lot of questions. I said, I followed them like a, like a puppy dog. I said, you're going to go to the shop floor. Uh, we were, we had a manufacturing plant there. And I said, if you're going to go to the shop floor, take me with you. I want to see what you look at, how, how you talk to people, what I, I need to understand what this job is. We were doing uh, computer aided design. So I would sit behind one of the more experienced engineers and watch how he used the systems. And so Basically, I had to self-qualify, and that's something that that uh, you know a lot of companies they'll they'll you get hired, and there's no process for for development, and there was none for me. I had to sort of figure it out on my own, uh, and through that process, I actually decided it's interesting when you come on a submarine, you 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 begin in engineering, you start in the engine room, and you learn the engine room, and you work your way forward to where you know, where you're finally driving the ship and operating weapon systems and what have you, but you start in engineering. And I felt like that way in my civilian career, I'm starting in engineering, but I want to run the ship. I want to be the general manager. And so for me, it was like, I knew that I wanted to get to the front of the ship. So I had to figure out what's the best way I can go to move into that command position, be, move into the general manager position. And so I did through through volunteering, I would, you know, it's interesting because in, in companies, there's lots of opportunities to volunteer. Oh, we need someone, we're going to do this survey. Oh, we've got a, we need somebody to get qualified as an internal auditor. We need somebody to, um, uh, you know, what have you do, uh, employee relations committee or whatever. So what I did was I volunteer for everything. Uh, every time they wanted a volunteer, I was like, I'll do it. And because I wanted to learn everything about the business. I wanted to make connections. I want to learn, uh, meet people. Uh, I became, uh, uh, I got really involved with the QA program at, at this facility and eventually got, they asked me to be the quality manager. So I went, I moved into quality uh, and then, um, and then our, the engineering manager for the division left. And since I had the engineering and the quality, they wanted me to be the engineering manager. So I took over the engineering manager spot. And then uh, about five years into, since I left, after I left the Navy, uh, a manufacturing plan opened where they needed a general manager. And so I had had a lot of engineering experience, QA experience, and um, the, this product was making a very highly um, high, high quality part that was used in nuclear power plants. So I had the nuclear power background. And so I got the opportunity to become a general manager just five years out of the Navy. Wow. And it wasn't quite there where I found my passion. Uh, I, I served in that role for about uh, for about two years, and then I went to another plant, and it was there where I realized this was my life's mission now, which was to turn around struggling manufacturing businesses. That that became what I did. I ran eight different manufacturing businesses in 22 years, and that was my passion and my calling. So my new passion, you know, so the beginning was like I want to be on submarines and, and 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 I got a chance to do that and then seven years after the military I found I wanted to turn around struggling manufacturing what's business. the key to turning around a struggling manufacturing business because it's like it, it seems yeah. it feels like a, a plate of, well, from my perspective it's like a plate of spaghetti it's like you know it's because there are so many bits to that yeah a struggling business it's like you know from the point of like 
Can they make it the right price? Is the quality yeah. good? Is there a market for it? Is there the, you know, there's so many yeah. things yeah. that could go wrong with that. Yeah, you you end up now, you know, after doing it a while, you end up like a doctor trying to trying to diagnose what the problem is. Mm. You know, is it internal problems, like you say? Is it cost? Is it quality? Is it is it other external issues like competition and and price and and internal or uh, uh, international uh, mm. competition coming in? You know, taking market share. You've got to sort of dissect and figure out what's 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 the problem with the patient, and in each case there was something wrong with each one of the businesses that required, you know, working on. So it doesn't happen overnight to find what's wrong, but, uh, but that's what you have to do is sort of diagnose the problem and then sort of figure it out and then put a plan together to, and and one of the biggest things I do is trying to bring everybody onto one team uh, focused on a singular goal. And, And so one of the things I've found in these businesses is that everybody's working on different things and moving in different directions. And one of, one of the biggest, biggest things to do is find out what's wrong, find out what the focus needs to be and get everybody on the same page, rowing in the same direction. That's a big part of, you know, the, the success of the turnarounds have always been about unifying everybody towards a common mission. And, and my second book is called all in the same boat. And that was the idea was getting everybody on the same boat and and moving one direction. So we'll we'll get onto your books because obviously obviously at some stage you've, you've obviously become, you've obviously learned so much that you chose to write it all down, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I didn't know that at the time, but after doing it eight different times, I'm like, okay, there's a sort of a recipe for success for for business. Yeah. So yeah. that's where the books came from out of your out of your experience of that journey. Yeah. So I I left uh, I left corporate seven years ago, started my own manufacturing business, and um, and so I began probably about ten years ago. I began starting writing articles and and and, and writing you know leadership stories and what have you, and uh, that led to led to a book. But um, but I recognized sort of after you know twenty two years of doing this that. I'm doing something different than the, my peers. I noticed my mm. businesses would would move quicker. We were we were able to meet our meet our targets. We were able to turn around struggling businesses, and so I decided, well, I got to write some of the stuff down because because and and a lot of the foundational stuff I learned in the Navy, I was just bringing into business, and and I didn't sort of realize that till later on. Like, oh, mm. well, this was something I, we did in the military. Oh, okay, that that makes sense to me. Why I do it here? So it. It took me, it wasn't like I knew from day one that I'm going to use military principles in business. No, I, I but I realized after 22 years, I, that's what I did. Well, what else would you use? I mean, what else would you do? You that was my experience. From, yeah. You came from that experience and you, and you, yeah. it's the only thing you knew. And no one gave you a different recipe book to follow. So the only book you had was the one you, you, you just been studying. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it worked. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, so then I realized, you know, that this is some unique, these are some mm. unique uh, situations. I need to write it down. And so that's where the books came from. So to tie up my question, because this is obviously the nice passion business, and we have these yeah, five yeah. questions that we, we have to work through. I don't have to, but they, they're a good structure. <laughs> so how do you define success for yourself these days? Because success okay. originally was get into the military. Now that was the thing you yeah. did. You achieved that. So what is your measure of success now? Interesting that, you know, I think success, everybody looks at success differently, right? So a lot of people's like money, car, whatever, fame, all that. It's never been something for me. You know, uh, I always say that success is 
that little moment that you have after you achieve an objective, something that you really worked hard to. So I remember the first time I saw what success was, was after I was qualified on submarines, I was fully qualified and we were doing operations down in, uh, uh, right off the coast of the Bahamas. We do weapon, weapon shoots. So we spent all day shooting weapons and then the mid watch, I had, I had the mid watch. And so I was the officer deck where the submarine was on the surface. I was up on the bridge and it was the most beautiful night you can imagine. It was 70 degrees, every star in the sky. You can see the Milky Way, you know, no light pollution. I was just, I spent six hours just sitting on there saying, I did it. I achieved my goal. I'm doing what I dreamed of doing. And that was success. To me, that's the, the, that moment where you just can sit back and look at what you've achieved and you say, I did it. That's where that moment to me, to me, that's where success is finding those moments where you work hard for something that you, you dreamt about and then be able to deliver it. So like I've seen success as well, when, uh, you know, a good friend of mine just launched a book. He, it, he just got the, the, the author's proof today and he, he's texting me and, and I've helped him through the whole process. And I just told him, I am feeling the emotions you're feeling right now. When you hold a book in your hand, when you work for two and a half, three years to write a book, and you finally see it in your hands. That's that little moment of success. You're like, I did something very difficult. So right now, for example, I'm in a, a, doc, a doctorate program. I'm working on my doctorate in strategic management. It's really stinking hard. I'm 55 years old. I hadn't been in college in 20 years. And uh, it's hard, but I'm doing it because I, I just, I, I want to take and blend all the things I'm, I've learned through practice with the things that are in academics and bring that together to be able to help and teach and train new leaders. But it's really hard, but there's going to be a point where I'm going to find success, which is going to be that few, that moment where I finish that thing and someone calls me Dr. Rennie for the first time. And I go, oh. Hey, that's kind of cool. That is going to be kind of cool, isn't it? That's going to be, <laughs> yeah. be kind of cool. Make sure, make sure we, you know, make sure you let us know when that happens. Cause it'd be interesting to follow follow up on that one for you. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I, I know what you mean by that moment of success. I did my first marathon last year and I, and crossing that, that line, crossing that line was, was pretty amazing. And you know, you know, a marathon is the perfect example of it because here's the deal. You get excited when you sign up for the race, right? And then, but then it's the training. The, 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 what you don't see, the people who run marathons, is the, the, the week after week, month after month training that goes into it, right? And so at the beginning of a race, you're excited to, to get going, right? But it's the middle of it when you're in, you know, when you're 10 miles in and when you're yeah, 15 it's miles mile. in. It's tw- the marathon begins at 20 miles. And that's, yeah, when, that's and, when every so, every bone, every part of my leg and back hurt at that point. And that was the point. There's no excitement. There's no, there's no. I was tears. I was crying, actually. I was crying. Yeah, it, and there was floods pain. of emotion coming out. And I go, yeah. I don't know what I'm crying for. <laughs> <laughs> but then on the other end, is it's that you cross the finish line and you just have that moment of I did it. I did something really difficult, you know, and nobody knows, you know, and, and, and I like, I actually wrote about it in my book is that we grow in that at the 20 mile mark, we grow as people when we're in the middle of something that's really difficult. Right. And that's where the growth happens. Mm, Absolutely. So let's move us on and we can get to your books in a moment. Um, What happens? what, What, how do you define contribution to the world? How do you think you've contributed to the world? It's interesting. It's a great question because it's actually something I talk to high school students. And um, one of the things uh, I talk about, actually, I bring up the idea of a nub. I tell them not to be a nub. 
but don't be a non-useful body because I think we live in a society where uh, we can be consumers. We can spend all our day consuming content, consuming YouTube videos, consuming books, consuming uh, TV, internet, video games, whatever. Uh, there's so many things to distract us. But the people that are doing things in the world are the ones that are the creators. And so I think that we need to create more than we consume. Yep. And especially, I would say, as we get older and we have now this wealth of knowledge and experience that can be passed on, I really do think that we need to be uh, we need to be net contributors to the world. We need to be creators and not consumers. And so anytime I find myself consuming too much, I like stop. I'm like, I got to create. I've got to go do something to create. And so uh, I think that's where you know, like, you know, the writing comes from, I lead a podcast called Deep Leadership, where I'm um, interviewing, you know, academics, practitioners, um, uh, just just experts in, in, in leadership, but I'm learning and, and growing through that, but also sharing these stories to uh, to the next generation of leaders. I speak at colleges. I was just at uh, NC State uh, this week speaking to graduate students about, you know, I do a two-hour session on what, what real leadership looks like, you know, in the real world, because they get a lot of academic stories, but they don't hear from practitioners a lot of the times. So for me, it's the idea of uh, being an, a, a net uh, create, you know, a net creator and creating more than we consume. And it's something I'm really passionate about. So for me, contribution is a coin with two sides. So mm. one side is what you do for the world, but we're also here for ourselves in this world. We, you know, we, we have a yeah. body and we're here for ourselves. So how do you contribute to yourself? So I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about that in leadership on, our, <clears throat> on my, my leadership podcast too. It's, it's all about self-leadership and I mm. think it's a big part of it. And so I've, what I've always believed, if, if we need to be strong uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and I'll even add this financially, if we want to be good leaders, mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of effort to, to put yourself out there and to, to lead teams, lead businesses. I started this uh, manufacturing business seven years ago. It's hard work, right? And so you need to have, you need to be able to be strong for when the, when the, when the storms come. And if you're not right. <clears throat> And, and I have a good friend of mine, he talks about the idea of being on stage as a leader when you're on when, when you're a leader on stage. But if the back of the stage is all messed up, it's all disorganized, you're distracted and you can't be your best. And so the idea of self-leadership is making sure that your backstage is organized so that you can take care of what's on the front of the stage. So I think for me, it's like so I, I get up at four every morning. Uh, I, I work out in the way I, I write in the beginning. So I'm, I write every morning until five. I, I work out from five to six. So I, I'm a weightlifter. I, I'm into powerlifting. Uh, I, I work out till then. And then and then I'm off to, to here to my job where I actually run a manufacturing business. Um, and then at night, I uh, two nights a week, I record podcasts. I interview. I have to do two episodes a week. So uh, and then I do my homework for my uh, PhD program in between all that. So, but no, it's, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's all, it's all about maintaining your, your, who you, who you are, maintaining your systems. Uh, I'm feeling tired. Just listening to that. Just hang on a minute. <laughs> if you're up at four in the morning, what time do you get to bed? I'm usually in bed around nine. But, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm usually reading and I usually fall asleep while I'm reading. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That is some schedule, I have to say. Yeah, you, you, I mean, I have a, a, nothing like your schedule. 
but I do have a schedule, a system. But wow, that's uh, that is yes, you certainly do look after yourself, and you certainly have yourself. And there's a touch of military in that, isn't there? I think there is. Um, I think, but but I also think it's it's I've learned over the years to develop habits mm. uh, versus discipline. So you know, I mean, the part of it is discipline, but but also is creating natural habits for you so that you don't have to think about it. For example, I have a home gym, so I have a gym that's that's literally twenty steps from my bedroom. So mm. if I'm not work, I have no excuse not no. to get to that gym. Right? Um, all I have to do is put on some clothes and I'm there. So there's no excuse. So I create systems for myself that work so that I don't, you know. So it just becomes normal. Yes, routine. yes. If you if you make it easy for yourself, it's it's about to make it happens, isn't it? I agree with you absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So I think just so my creating... workout clothes are literally as I walk out of my room into into they're, they're just there, and so I will often and, and I. I will do either yoga or run every day. Yeah. So I do one or t'other. Yeah. And that's, that's how you do it is create those systems. I think in the early days I would reward myself, you know, like I would have a great workout and then I would get like a, a really good protein drink, you know, that, that really tasty. And that was like my reward for doing the hard work. And that was in the, in the early stages, but after a while, I don't, to me, the reward is actually being in the gym. And so I don't need to reward myself. I enjoy I enjoy the challenge of what I'm trying to do. So yeah, yeah. I do. Actually, I do know. It's like I, I, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to do that. I mean, I'm 59, so I've got a few years on you. So, so I, yeah. I am, I'm yeah. fighting entropy at the moment in terms of my body wants to slow down. So yeah, yeah, and it really has slowed down over the last year or so. So I'm, I'm trying to get my marathon time down. But anyway, anyway, we'll do this. We will do this. But <laughs> I need more, more strength training. Um, yes. Well. I'm, doing, I'm trying to get my weight up and there's only so much a 55 year old guy can do so <laughs> yeah indeed yes there's it yeah we are both fighting entropy on that one absolutely yeah so um it's interesting moving us you touched on it just a moment ago on that, on that idea of you know spiritually but it's like you know we are humans on this planet and you know we we, we live eat you know we live eat rep, rep, um, reproduce and die here but is there a meaning to it all how do you, you know, why are you doing all this for you? And, you know, yeah. 50, 60 years ago, it would have been, you know, the, the priest in the pulpit would have told you it's the glorification of God. But And it yeah. might be that for you, but religion has waned in its importance in the world, or certainly in the Western world. And so yeah. people are now having to make the decision for themselves while they're doing it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I am a Christian. I do go to church every Sunday, and that's okay. a big part of who I am. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of uh, through... I'm just for for me at least. There's a lot of great. Um, the Bible gives us a lot of great stories of how to hmm. live a, a, a much better life, right? And I think that when we know that there's something bigger than us, then uh, then it, it it helps with stress. It helps with uh, problems when you face challenges. Uh, prayer is a good way to just sort of settle your mind down and put those problems uh, to a to to a God that's listening. So yeah, I think I think religion for me is important. I think it it gives me a lot of uh so strength. is that your is that your meaning and reason for doing what you do? Not not necessarily. I mean I think that it's it's a it's a it's an integral part of my life, I guess mm. I would say. It's not it's not everything I do. Uh, in fact, you probably, if you followed me on my social media, you're probably like, oh, I, he, he never talks about his Christianity. And, 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 and I do to, the, to, to my, my close friends and the people I go to church with and things. But uh, to me, um, well, I mean, just in terms of like <clears throat> what I think is important in life is I, I always say that, you know, there's three things that I think we, we all need to have and we have them. We, we, we're, we're, we're in a much better place. And, and, and they might sound kind of funny, but it's um, 
it's it's uh, time, right? Time to be able to, uh, to have time off, time freedom of time, money to where you have some, you know, you have some ways to be able to enjoy that time, and then someone to spend it with. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have those three things, you're generally pretty well off uh, in, in your life. And so, uh, for me at least, I, you know, I've been married for 31 years. I have two two boys that are. That are now grown out of the house. One's in the Navy, by the way. My youngest is in the Navy. The other one's surprise, in the surprise. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but um, but in my so it's just my wife and I and two golden retrievers that that are still at home. And I I you know I I deeply love my wife. I have a great relationship with her. And so we've done enough in our life to have to have money, to have time together, and 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 uh, time to spend it. And I think that those those when you when you were there and you get a chance to enjoy those experiences, like for example, we like to travel. So we were in Norway this summer, and uh, we spent two weeks in in Norway, and you know going through the fjords and all that. And it's like that that's life. That's right. Getting a chance to explore someplace, go somewhere, and have these shared experiences with someone that you deeply love. I think those are those are the moments where I say this is what it's all about. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, John, before we move on to your books, could you just tell everybody how they could find out about you and 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 how they can track you down? You're, are you you said you're on social media and stuff. Yeah. So if you go to my website, johnsrenny.com, there's links to everything, links to my books, links to my podcast. My social media links uh, are there as well. I'm very active on Twitter of all places. Uh, I found uh, this. It's just an interesting platform uh, in terms of just a diverse ideas <laughs> opinions it's it's a wild it's the wild west of got a bit wild media. it's got a bit wild of late <laughs> <laughs> yeah it really is but you know it's it's like anything else it, it can be a source of pain or it can be a source of uh of joy and i think i've found uh i've learned a lot i've met a lot of amazing people through twitter so it's an amazing platform for me but just like the internet you can use it for evil you can use it for good i use my i use it for good and i learn a lot and i inter- interact a lot so i think i have somewhere like twenty thousand followers and nice. and uh so we get a lot of interaction on there so if twitter is where i'm probably mostly at but i'm also on all the socials but the links are in on my website lovely well all those links will be available at the website life passion and business do check him out so uh, thank you so much and that was life passion and business with paul harvey and my guest john Rene. now you can find john at his own website which is johnrenne.com you can also find the podcast which is deepleadershippodcast.com he's also on youtube deep leadership podcast He's on Twitter, John Rene, and you can find his books on Amazon. Now, all the links for those things will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. And while you are there, hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means. That is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, 
do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions ebook and worksheets. Now this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery and it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.